Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnate, xgrayx. And if it's the two of us here on X's for Podcast, and it's a Monday, that can only mean one thing. We're taking a journey back to Universe 982, the MC2. That's the one. Or the two, as it were. We are continuing the Amazing Era, and I have to be honest, the Amazing Era is kind of bumming me out it has not been what i wanted at all for spider girl this feels almost like it could not be tom defalco the man who loved this character so much yeah it, it feels like the man who loved this character so much but it feels like the man who doesn't know the world we're living in where this book is taking place and yeah you, you get to a certain age and you just maybe shouldn't be writing teen characters unless they really are a reflection of your own experience in your own time And there's something almost hard to read about a lot of the villains of these issues. We're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Girl 15 to 24, which is the balance of our previous episode, which we didn't manage to get through. Plus, we're going to be taking a look at American Dream 1 through 5. These issues were released from February 2008 to April 2008. Notably, the American Dream issues were July through September 2008. These were, of course, all written by Tom DeFalco with art by Ron Friend and Sal Buscema on all of the Amazing Spider-Girls featuring colors by Bruto Hong of Impact Studios. American Dream is by Tom DeFalco with early work by one of my all-time favorite ever X-Men artists, Todd Nock, who has assists from Scott Koblish and colors by Rob Rowe. All of the letters are by Dave Sharp. Now, I know I'm coming pretty intense at how hard I love Todd Nock, but if you can read his Nightcrawler book and not think that the guy can draw anything in the X-Universe, I think we just have different aesthetics for the X-Men, but like totally fair if he's not your jam, but I think Todd Nock is here to save the world. I think he is such a perfect product of this time in a way that highlights the best of the styles that were really prominent 10 plus years ago. Okay, you know what? I think I really like that explanation because I do think at this point we see Todd Nock on a lot more covers and that maybe makes a little bit more sense. And uh, all right, let's do the let's do the dates and the numbers. Amazing Spider-Girl Volume 3, my Mind Games, which also includes issues 13 through 14 of Amazing Spider-Girl, as well as what we're going to cover, 15 through 18, was released in May of 2008. That means it was literally released later the same month that Amazing Spider-Girl 18 came out. That's wild. Amazing Spider-Girl Volume 4, featuring issues 19 through 24, brand new May, sees itself release right around Christmas in 2008. Spider-Girl presents Amazing Dream Volume 1. Beyond Courage, pretty brave to put a volume one there, was released in October of 2008, a month after the conclusion of the series. And there's only one thing to do. It's time to make it. Hold on. You got to take that back. You said Amazing Dream. Oh, yeah. And it's not. So American Dream. So let's let's get to the thing that's really not amazing. (laughs) Let's get to the, the MC2 American Nightmare. The rapid decline of the reset that was going to save us all. Fuck, man. 
man. This is the saddest thing. Amazing Spider-Girl 15 sells a truly depressing 17,000 issues, 17,000 copies. What makes it so, so, so depressing is that that was an anniversary issue. It is done up right so that it looks like an anniversary issue. It just fails to capture any kind of sales momentum. We then see a steady decline, dropping roughly 500 copies per issue until Amazing Spider-Girl 24 sells just under 15,000 copies. You know, it does hang out for a while in the 15,000s. I do need to admit, it does stay a pretty comfortable amount of time there, but I can only imagine that American Dream opening at 15,000 copies and closing at just over 10,000 was the ultimate nail in this very slow, sad death. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Every time we revisit numbers and we see them decline and we talk about how low they are and that, okay, well, you know, this 25,000, I guess that's the core audience. This 21,000, I guess that's the core. This 15,000, I guess that's the core audience. And with numbers that low, it really, it seems like it should be a core audience. And so the fact that you are even losing those people, you're even dipping below 25,000, 21,000, that I think speaks to the idea that even if you love this character so much and really want to see stories about her, we have now gotten to a place where it is not so much the character that is the problem. It is the context and just that this no longer is the correct person to be writing these stories. It is right around this time that Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends begin their work on Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man. This title would ultimately be designed to replace Spider-Girl and end her time as a solo title. This would become a backup feature in Spider-Man Family, an ongoing title that would begin publication in November of 2008. Initially, it would see work with Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, but wouldn't you know, when people heard that Spider-Girl was getting canceled and that she was being replaced with a backup story about her dad, they fucking rallied. And uh, within three issues, they had to pull fucking Ron Friends and Sal Buscema off of Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man to start a new volume of Spider-Girl. And Todd Nock finished it out. But um, Marvel really said, this guy's too old. Nobody listens to techno. And they said, no more. No more, Tommy D. And Tommy D said, but Joey Q. And Joey Q said, no, no, Tommy D. And Tommy D was like, okay, I hear you. I really understand what a legendary run I've had. And he says, okay, so I'm going to do that thing that everybody does and I'm going to write a vanity project. And they were like, sure. And then somehow popular demand that refused to exist month to month to sell issues exists to Hail Mary. And all I'm going to say on that is yesterday, as of recording this, Warner Brothers released that Zack Snyder's <laughs> Justice League yes. was primarily fueled by bots and that the combat of bad reviews for Batman vs. Superman was ultimately paid for by Zack Snyder's marketing team. This coming hot off the heels of the internet meme of it's Morbin time convincing Sony to re-release Morbius in theaters only to have absolutely nobody go and see it because it was a complete and total fucking joke. It makes me really say, is that how Spider-Girl kept getting one more life? I'm not saying that Spider-Girl was such a joke to everyone that no one would let it, I guess I am, but I'm not saying it like almost mean. It's that thing of where there's that clip of Cameron Mannheim at the Golden Globes saying that Gladiator won Best Picture and she's just so drunk and she's 
kind of stumbling around and it cuts to Cameron Mannheim in the audience who gives an oh that Liz kind of look and you reach a point where you're just sort of like I'm not laughing at her I'm laughing with her you know what I mean and she just and then she goes gladiator you're just white diamonds bitch and so I guess what I'm trying to say is Spider Girl toward the end of its run feels like an aging actor that you continue to invite to the awards ceremony I'm not even sure this actor is still getting work I don't know why people continue to root for this book this is the first episode in a really long time where I'm like you know what it's been about 10 minutes let's move into the episode because there's so little left for me personally to say and I'm happy to hear everything you want to contribute but like as your partner on this project I'm finding myself frustratingly tired by the lack of more well I think you hit the nail on the head in the last episode where you talked about how this is the past Marvel house style that has been completely revamped in this era and Marvel is doing an entirely different thing and I think we see artistically a lot of that bear out in American Dream Um, but in Spider Girl we're seeing just some again somebody who is not supposed to be writing this anymore it it should have gone to somebody else and I think that enthusiasm from fans that comes up is no don't kill the book make it better put somebody else on it get new blood on it we love this character we want we want to see this continue we just don't know why you are dogmatically letting this one dude be the only person who touches it creatively and when you said the Liz Taylor story it made me think about Liza Minnelli presenting at the award show with Lady Gaga where like almost part of the feature is the fact that you're seeing these two people on stage but like a big part of it is that Liza Minnelli can't do that on her own and so you've got to have somebody out there to assist her but it's got to be a big name and somebody who can do it charmingly and all I can think of in comparison is like and I hate to even use this name but it's a spider person that was popular in writing at this time if somebody like a Bendis had gone on this and like Tom DeFalco had been broadly creative something or like you know assistant editor I don't know what kind of head of spider girl I don't know what title you'd give him but if somebody else had really been the person doing the writing and Tom DeFalco could have been getting credit and being a part of the process we might have been able to transition into something sustainable for this character but I mean we were talking I feel like minimum 25 maybe 50 issues ago about how DeFalco's time should have been winding down for this character and it, it new blood is always important but when you're talking about a teen some young blood really is important because the risk you run by not detaching someone who is maybe not providing the strongest vibe is i think this could have been a runaway hit i think you could have done something with this as evidenced by the success of the ultimate universe shortly thereafter i mean the problem becomes the question of iconography and how easy it is to combat the value of a character property that's already tried and tested. Miles Morales works so well because he's already a Spider-Man. So like, there's factors. Don't get me wrong. But I think this could have been a major, major thing instead of a book where every bad guy has a giant bulbous head. Yeah, that's pretty much all you can say about it. You know, we started with a little bit about what 10 years of The Amazing Spider-Girl means to us. We talked a bit about the, you know, different characters on the cover we didn't really get to get to the issue itself because there was so much to talk about all in all it's frustrating that Mindworm is I don't I don't know how to put this some of the best musculature in the entire series is <laughs> wasted on this um 
monster? First of all, he's smuggling an ironing board in his forehead. <laughs> Secondly, that's a cute fucking tank top. So why are you? I just don't understand. I work so hard for biceps like that. And they're giving it to this guy who also sometimes he pretends to be a lady or a smaller guy for a guy who's so big. He's like, let me pretend to be so small. I don't know what's going on. Why wouldn't you just slightly rearrange your hideous face when you have a body like that? Why is he completely converting himself into the fucking lead singer from Crazy Town when he wants to get hookers up to his room? And the fact that that's how he decides to be a sugar butterfly baby is frustrating to me because he doesn't make his body smaller so he's still knocking into furniture you know what i mean i like part of me is like is this a commentary on the fact that you can be so super hot and jacked if you have a nice body but then if you have a hideous face like it just isn't gonna work for anybody i don't know i definitely have spent my entire life subscribing to only fans and porn feeds that are the opposite of that right so I, i find myself really frustrated that Hobgoblin and Mindworm are still in this. It feels like something that should have ended a long time ago and that we compound it with so many villains from the past. It feels like the agony issue again, only now it's like really fucking agony. Yeah, we are in agony reading this. Yes. Not that we get the character here. The character in some ways would almost be better. Yeah, I mean, the Hobgoblin thing, one of the bigger problems at this point is that like Goblin stuff is really the core of villainy and problematicness opposing Spider-Girl. And, you know, we had some great runs with Normie getting over his goblin stuff. We have fucking Phil being a goblin again. Like, we've dealt with goblin stuff throughout this, and it has all managed to be connected except for Hobgoblin, who comes in and just really wants to be kingpin of crime, but he is a goblin person, and he's running parallel to stories with other goblin people that are not connected to him. The character seems like he should make sense being there because he is a goblin person and that's a thing for may parker but it doesn't make sense here because he he might as well be canis or funny face or anybody who was just really into the crime scene and like this book always just very much wants to be batman about it and that's just not where spider people live like they can get into that every now and then and that's really fun but the amount of crime family stuff that has happened in this book is is not where I think this book ever should have been. Because the other trade-off that that causes is then we have to stay in sort of more of that crime family mentality. It drags down the bigger sense of what Spider-Girl has become. For all of the ways we might say that this is kind of like a flashback to classic spider times, a simpler time. Once you've gone cosmic, it's hard to convince me that smaller works so well it's why whenever marvel's like oh it's time to you know bring daredevil back to crime noir the way you do it is with a new writer and maybe a short miniseries break when it's time to bring the x-men back from space you leave some x-men in space you give them a miniseries and then you launch some new other x-men on a team and then you bring the first team back 
And it's always a big deal when you do that. It's like, they finally got back. We now have to restart the school or like, now I'm going to do this team. It's a marked occasion and it's a total status quo change. And this book has just constantly been in a state of like, I quickly detoured from dealing with the crime families to go deal with this alien that showed up to murder the Fantastic Five. And now I'm back to dealing with the crime family. And when it's not the crime families, it's a really uneven treatment of the reality of May's life. I understand that nobody here was currently Currently a young woman in high school, which in the fuck of itself is one of the problems. Yeah. Not that I think we should be humorously, not that I think we should be hiring 14 year old young women to be writing Marvel comics, but yeah, the fuck we should. Absolutely. I don't know why we wouldn't like make sure that they've got somebody who has a command of story structure who can really help them out. But I think stories come from all sorts of people and that doesn't make them any less special, right? That's the whole point of this book. The whole point of Spider Girl is a young woman can fucking do anything. So, like, I don't think it's so crazy that they could have had a Spider-Girl writer represent the ideals that they supposedly wanted young women to take from Spider-Girl. Of course, the confounding reality is that even if the book was essentially a creative outlet that allowed a young woman to do anything, it was still the mouthpiece of an older white man, which was meant to be sold to older white men at the behest of older white men. So it's it's a trade. At one point, there was a hope that young people... I, I I still think young boys, I don't ever think young women were super on the on the list, but I hope that young people would identify with this book in 1998. And, you know, I suspect by 2001, 2002, it was clear that the audience was going to be primarily the demographic makeup of your standard comic book reader, which does, of course, include young women and young men, but is often skews a little bit older, a little bit more familiar with the worlds and the continuities. Once we got on that path, then you're really stuck because if you try and do anything else and the book flops, then you're totally done for. And although the sales numbers, as we've discussed, are not impressive, they are relatively consistent. I mean, they shift over long periods of time, but you know, whatever audience they had, they they maintained them to the best of their ability. I, I don't know that in this case, that maintenance was the best thing for anybody. Because we get so many villains that I don't want to see again. Like I actually made a list of how many characters almost bothered me. We see Funny Face, Canon, Dr. Jade Spiral Claw, who technically wasn't evil, La Fantome, who technically sucked too much to use again, Bitter Frost, who technically, how dare you, Kodiak, how dare you, and, you know, v- Reverb, the Scryers, Apox, Seth, literally, the bigger problem here is somebody just went through and started listing characters that have appeared and felt the need to draw them in. It 100% is that. Just every person that you can think of that you can fit, put them in, because it's our 10-year anniversary we gotta do it no you actually really don't and we could have done this a number of different ways having little easter egg shots of everybody doesn't do anything for anybody but this also reminds me of the fact that we speculated before the original run ended that claw was going to end up being the other child of felicia hardy which made the most sense at the time because he was a sexy cat burglar boy with long hair and then that was the thing that completely fucking derailed me about this book when it started was that gene thompson is just some fucking douchebag in high school and then whatever happened to Claw now he's just in May's night and it's such a disappointment because
because it's not even like we're given a likable, enjoyable sort of uh, balance. It's not like, oh, well, but at least Gene tells us something interesting. We get interesting things from the Black Tarantula development. I really enjoy uh, like Buff maybe. Yeah, yeah. That is fucking wild. Almost kind of a mistake because once you do it and show us you can, the fact that you haven't been doing it makes you seem like a little bit of an asshole. Yeah, I mean, Black Tarantula Mayday is like literally one of the best things in the whole series somehow. 100%. It is such a defining moment for me as a reader that I didn't see this coming, but it's such a classic spider trope. What if he becomes the goblin? What if he becomes Venom? But of course, Mayday's Venom isn't the symbiote. May's Venom is this pervasive symbiote of crime. And I love all of the Chesbro loves her stuff in this arc. I love Mayday as Black Tarantula. And the fact that it's just um, Muscle McGiant forehead doing it to her is a bummer. Yeah. Oh, also, every good guy appears. Even yeah. fucking Franklin, who shouldn't be appearing. And I love the Mad Dog appearance. Yep. What Spider-Girl want with you, Mad Dog? Exactly what every other woman wants, a restraining order? <laughs> From a gay man. Yeah, it's... Oh my god. And then on page 26 of the digital, that panel of Mindworm using his powers, again, that chest spread? Just insane. out of this fucking world. I, this is the most accurately muscular that I've ever seen anybody drawn in, like, in terms of like what muscles would look like that humongous. And yet his insane cleft palate beaver face is, face, yeah. is just up there doing its thing. I just, I don't, this character is so weird. I just can't imagine. I can imagine conceiving of him, I guess, but then the idea that you're like, this is the guy. This is the main guy for our 10-year anniversary. He's got to be the one. Hey, hey, it's a me. It's a uh, little bro. We have Benji Crime Boy. <laughs> hey, uh, sis, can you believe it? Our parents have got whacked, and now uh, we are the Sopranos and the Altos and the Tanners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how crime people talk. Yeah. Give me a hoagie sandwich. Yeah. I, as someone from New Jersey, I demand that my legislators stop whatever they're doing and draft a bill against this hate crime because fucking Benji Parker is I mean I'm actually making a joke because if anything is a hate crime it's every time a person of color is uh, part of a, a crime organization they immediately start talking like Blackula and I cannot start to process how that's I mean I even mean like Davida Kirby sometimes is like you man enough I can't it's literally you know pre-murder Alec Baldwin's Tracy Jordan family impression at times it's scary it's i can't believe that somebody has all six matches there really is nothing more to say like i don't this is just chaos it's not really even fun chaos it's so not fun that it, then now like talking about it with somebody that cares as much as you do about this whole thing is making it fun but you listener slash reader i'm sorry it's probably not as fun for you and probably wasn't like it was for us when we were reading it it really is just i'm completely lost with what we're doing here not just details of the issue, but really broadly, as we've discussed, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what the point is. And it is just so full of stuff.
stuff that I'm sometimes tricked into thinking I should stop and take stock of everything and give a shit. But that would be a mistake and a waste of my time because there is nothing here to care about. Because at the end of the day, this is all some sort of manufactured situation to break up a couple that doesn't exist. I like that Spider-Girl gets unique moments of breaking free of bondage. You know, breaking free of bondage visually is a huge element of Spider's iconography, like Spider-Man's, whether it's, you know, coming free of webs he's tangled himself in, breaking free of the symbiote, coming free of the costume controlling his life. You know, because Spider-Man is so centralized to the idea of secret identity, the idea of unmasking, of release, of freeing yourself is a huge part of the character's inherent visual, right? So Spider-Girl needs her own that aren't just pushing the debris off in the sewer. So I like her breaking out of the world's worst fishbowl. But I think that Black Tarantula is like, damn it, I hate this bust of Spider-Girl and now I have to kill her is such a bummer. I don't know where this goes. So my my assumption is just that this is like, he's either going to be mind controlled himself or it was like an act for somebody that we didn't realize was watching and he actually still secretly loves Spider-Girl. I would not have even bothered to put this in because we still know so little about Black Tarantula that the idea that he would just show up again and be frustrated with May for getting in the way of his crime stuff would have been fine on its own. And we could have just ended on Happy Anniversary May Day, which doesn't really even in, a, in and of itself feel super earned, but I, a better place to stop. This didn't need a post credits. Yeah. And then once we get into kind of the remainder of this arc, 16, 17, and 18, I have fewer notes on the events of 16, 17, and 18 than I have on some single length issues. There is a really unfortunate sense of of the okay and like i'm making a lot of jokes about how buff mindworm is uh, and how hideous his face is but like there is something to be said for how much this book automatically makes anybody evil incredibly ugly often um they all have amazing bodies so that they can prove a physical or sexual threat to mayday that's part of why these characters are so jacked so that they're intimidating but then we codify them as evil by making them ugly uh we even have because this book blurs the lines of things because there really are times that I think that the, someone somewhere in terms of the creative and editorial didn't think Gene is a monster. I mean, like Mayday should be saying that Gene is an abuser and he is psychologically controlling her and trying to destroy her life. But instead, she's like, he's not that bad. He has some really good points. I mean, I did promise him I would come to football practice. No, you're an abuse victim. Break free. And because I don't always think that the good guy, bad guy codification is is handled in the way it needs to be handled, we wind up where there are very good-looking evil people, which we're fine with. Most of the good-looking bad guys are inherited, like Roderick. But, you know, it turns out that the Fury is actually a hideous monster. It turns out, you know, Mindworm is a hideous monster. It turns out, you know, Simone is a hideous monster. Whoever is the antagonist is not necessarily evil, and then they are hot. Black Tarantula is an antagonist to May. He's a problem, but he's not evil. Like he, I mean, maybe he'll end up being, but so far he has not been evil. He kind of maybe loves her. There's some sexual tension and he's the hottest person in this entire universe. So I am feeling very frustrated and kind of, I want to say perhaps tired from the experience of always being let down that we're not seeing Spider-Girl get 
to where I want to see her move to. We're not finding a way to experience Spider-Girl growing up, and instead we're seeing the world around her grow up and advance, so we're seeing the threats go from a random street thug to this, you know, sort of blind spot, very over-the-top supervillain that we get in, what's her name, Dead Spot or whatever, Yeah, and this just doesn't take us anywhere. I feel like having Black Tarantula hire an assassin to hurt Spider-Girl doesn't move the book forward it's truly regressive in a lot of ways i just don't feel like i'm being given anything worth acknowledging we still got mindworm in the mix who's a hired henchman this whole three issues again it's hobgoblin dealing with the crime families and they all show up to say their crime stuff and who's going to be the leader of the crime and then it's somebody else is like that's actually going to be me so now spider girl and hobgoblin are on the same team because they hate all the other crime people and it's just like when you like go to hang out with a friend and you know none of their social circle at all and they're telling you about all the drama between these people and you just don't care at all they're not you don't want the drama anyway but these you also don't know a single one of these people and you don't care about any of the things that are happening with them that is this whole new york and it's also none of it is consistent this is now like a whole other set of people that lead crime families than any ones that we've seen before it, it just is it is not anything with everything going on i am personally grateful that the majority of my frustrations come to a conclusion in 18 so much happens in such a short period of time that feels like it's at a gallop there's so many people who are so surprised by betrayal in a world where nobody trusts or likes anyone and that's kind of stupid. Shut up. You're wrong. And of course, Mindworm is going to betray you, Hobgoblin. You've given him no reason not to betray you. And Mona, what were you thinking, thinking that you could play these crime people who were so up on you that you had to invent Crime Lord, which if one more person called this name that you chose to call this character stupid, then just you did not need that many extra lines of dialogue. There was no need to come up with a name that you would then have everyone call stupid. Yeah, it's not a funny joke in this case because this isn't a funny thing like it's not played for laughs at all it's supposed to be a very serious like hobgoblin makes his play and then it all goes awry and this one woman who has these other motives is trying to get in the mix and you know to have a punchline that her name is stupid is just doesn't play with anything else that's happening it could be a funny beat in a completely different story but not this one because i find myself more frustrated by the inability of the book to stick to a consistent tone than I am amused by the jokes. It's not a TV show. The aside doesn't take one second. It takes a panel minimum. And I have long said that I think that there is benefits to mixing media, but as long as you don't forget what you're talking about in a lot of ways, you know, not being too tangential, just I don't always think animated shows that, or even live action shows that use a million cutaway gags are necessarily the best format for that style of humor that feels very much like sketch comedy or like good stand-up, right? But I don't know that that always visually plays out where if you remove all of the jokes, you still have an episode. If everything good about your thing is the cutaways, then there's nothing good without referencing someone else, and then you're not really doing the thing anymore. So much of what we like about Spider-Girl is either cute, funny little things like Mad Dog 
dog who has nothing to do with the book in any shape, way, or form and frankly doesn't really appear again too much, or it's things we like that tie into classic spider stuff. If you take away the things that are cutaways, references to Dog the Bounty Hunter and Spider-Man, there's really nothing to like. Yeah, I think that's a perfect summation of the situation. Mad Dog's a great example, and it's as I was saying before, he is an antagonist to May. He's a problem for her to solve, but he's not evil. And you can have conflict and a great story in which, even in comic book stories, even where inevitably you will have a super villain to combat the superhero, you can do a lot with just an antagonist, somebody who is morally gray, an anti-hero that is coming against whoever the subject of your story is. And I think that is actually a really good zone for May because it feels a lot truer to what we know about, you know, how people go evil, how people do crime in the world as we know it today versus the one of 1960. Like, it, we, we don't do black and white anymore. We don't do this person is just evil. It's one of those places that this book could have established the roots that it needed to actually strongly grow had it chosen to work a little more on May's antagonists being people that, you know, people like Black Tarantula, people like Mad Dog, people she kind of liked, maybe even could have loved, but she's not going to let them do crime because she knows that that's wrong. And instead, we just get this insane clusterfuck of crime people, all of whom are terrible, all of whom just want to fight. And it's just for crime, like just crime broadly. I assume money is always the ultimate goal, but we don't even do money. It's just crime. Everybody keeps saying the word crime and naming themselves after crime. It's such an obvious, like, of course that's bad. And after one arc of it, we had established that May is against crime and we didn't need to do the other 15 crime arc. Because then I feel like part of what we're losing instead is an opportunity for May to do something that would add to her own spider mythos. We keep seeing her reference other things, but because we see her stuck in this same modus, we're not really going anywhere. I don't know. I can't say for certain. I don't want to project that by his 150th appearance, Spider-Man wouldn't get snatched up in a fucking bag but then again you know i'm gonna catch you with my death bag so there's always a killer bob out there with a really good bag but this whole thing you know and then mindworm keeps being like um kill hobgoblin and then later on hobgoblin's like i didn't appreciate that and mindworm's like oh it wasn't personal and hobgoblin literally says you shouted kill him several times and mindworm's like oops and then hobgoblin just kills him that's so unsatisfying This guy has haunted my nightmares because I'm attracted to parts of him and I really hate it uh, for months. And his death was, if I'd been reading this in live time, unfulfilling. Hobgoblin being like, I'm going to take a really good vacation. Unfulfilling. I don't know how 18 represents the ending to roughly 25 issues of arc. Yeah, I mean, all that is true. And then it's made even more unfortunate by the fact that that is not where the issue ends. No. No, it is not. We. I want to go out of my way to say that the doctor, toward the end of this issue... Oh, he fucks. What? What? 
what kind of king daddy is he? I love him. But I don't understand. Does, is it maybe like Gene smells like a, like it's like a drugs thing? Like, does Gene's scent make people crazy when they're not near it and then near it again for a minute? Like, is it like some sort of weird poppers, but it opens the hole to your needing to be abused by a dumb jock? Because the fact that so many issues end with Mayday being like, hey, Gene, I'm, I'm ready for you to mistreat me again till I remember is getting old. I mean, I just there's I have so many comments on this last page. May's face when she realizes that Gene is there does in fact give you the impression that she has caught whiff of some sort of drug and is now in a complete trance to the really to the point where if you look at that panel you're like something's going on here but it's not it's just a weird piece of art the choice for jeans pants to be sagging to this degree in 2008 on a white high school football player i don't know what to do with that i I think yeah i don't know what to say and you know i hate gene and wes like this is all happening because you know they're at the hospital because Benji's getting his fucking ears fixed because being deaf is the worst thing that could possibly happen to a child and we have to fix it as soon as possible. And the only thing that is redeeming about the fact that they're there and they get it fixed and it's, we never have to speak of this horrible thing again is the fact that the doctor who did it is the most fuckable man in the MC2. Setting that aside, then Wes happens to be there and comforts May and it's really beautiful moment that is interrupted by Jean. But the beauty of the moment is actually destroyed by the fact that Wes wears not one, but two thumb rings. I don't even know what that's code for. Like, do you? how many feet do you have to be able to put in your mouth to get that many rings on the bust? <laughs> I don't even know what to say. There is a certain level of the way that Gene is depicted visually and the way people treat him that is a little bit, yes, bully, you should try to have my mom. He's treated like an alpha male by almost the creative team in a way that I find very confusing. It is confusing because they, spoiler alert, everybody, they will get to the point where they reveal that he really is a piece of shit and May's like okay fuck you but the fanfare for her rejecting him is pretty low key given how horrible he is and how much of her time he is done like he is a villain the fact that this wasn't an angel angela situation is almost the biggest disappointment because he's such a piece of shit that without something bigger to clip to this it really is just that may was in this horribly abusive relationship that she like really seemed to have just been in for the dick then she's like oh i should quit this this guy sucks and just walks away and there's no point at which it's like holy shit i'm spider girl i saved the fucking world and i because of all the pressures of being a teenager and being a superhero and everything i've been through have allowed myself to be gaslit and verbally abused in ways that are so incredibly unhealthy this should never happen to a woman this is something that you know i have to this should have been the abuse issue rather than the fucking thing with Sandra and her boyfriend it, and if we're not going to do that then make it an angel and jealous thing like really ham it up and make it that it's not just that he's a high school bully asshole it is that he is the fucking red goblin or whatever the fuck you want to do with it but this whole thing of just like this super hot guy that she wanted so badly turned out to be a piece of shit and now we're just done with it it just it doesn't do justice to how amazing May is how horrible Jean treats her what a common thing that is for people for young women especially 
especially, and how this was a platform for a true lesson. I really love your, you know, he should have been like the red guy. But what if he even was like a popular high school football player and his nickname on the field was fucking like Field Goblin? I don't care. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, it, it could, that's actually a brilliant way to do it. Make it just like, oh, I see that reference. It's never, you know, there's a shadow on his face in one thing in which he looks vaguely goblin-esque. It's never that he actually does crime. Yeah. But like we get a little focus of him as the villain that he truly is. And I think that is a perfect example of something that Tom DeFalco would just never think to do. It's not where he is as a writer. It's not where he comes from. But a writer that was writing in 2008 that, you know, maybe had graduated college in the last 10 years, 20 years even, probably would have had instincts closer to them. And I'm going to lay it out. I probably give this arc a C minus, maybe a D. Yes. I've been, you know, very self-critical of being critical of this book because I've often said they did the best they could, but I've reached a point where you have 10 years of experience and if you do something for 10 years, you should be 10 years good at it. And I am not saying that this does not reflect a man or men because it's predominantly men. This does not reflect men whose body of work is not something to be proud of. I am not coming for these creators, but I am certainly saying that this outing is is filled with problematic elements that have never been in the work before. And it ultimately frequently works to undermine the confidence toward young women that this book engendered. And I think something that we talk about all the time is when you criticize, you know, you can talk about stuff that didn't work for you, didn't connect for you. You know, when anybody, whenever anybody's like, this book is bad, my response is always, okay, then you write a better one. Could you write one at all, let alone a better one? This arc, there is a lot of stuff in here that I I will say I think it is bad to the point that I feel like personally I could have done better but I think people in general could have done better and it, it is that failure to recognize you know things like it would be okay if Benji was deaf and just the complete lack of awareness about the deaf community about how people view deafness any discussion about like how it would be perfectly fine if he was deaf the fact that it juxtaposes with his spider powers like he could have been the first deaf spider person that would have been really cool seeing that opportunity there i have so little confidence in myself as a creative person and i will say i think i could have done better so when i'm critical of this issue i feel confident in that criticism because there are things here that are just tom defalco could have done better himself i don't know what happened that he didn't but i've seen better from him and gene's another great example i believe that there is better in tom defalco's writing it just is not reflected here After what seemed like we were never going to get through the earliest days of Avengers Next and things like Big Julie in the back of J2 having to put up with multiple iterations of Franklin Richards being the worst and a bummer and a canker on the soul of this universe, we find ourselves at the final ever non-Spider-Girl miniseries, American Dream. Five issues that really could have been an annual between arcs of Spider-Girl. Yeah, I agree with the fact that this probably could have been an annual. This is 
not the meatiest, most interesting story, but I think that American Dream is the character that Tom DeFalco should have written for 150 plus issues. I think this is exactly his wheelhouse. Yeah, if for no other reason, it accidentally has 10 tropes that he's tried to put on 10 different characters. We've felt that all of Spider-Girl's supporting cast is basically interchangeable. Your Brad's are your JJ's are your Mooses's are your in some cases actually are your the buzzes. But here I and like, you know, there's really no way to talk about these five issues separately. It is one very short several batches of eight pages that somehow stretches to 22. It has that soap opera thing where it after one issue when you start the next issue, it's basically repeating everything that you read for the previous five pages of the last issue again for the next five. So that's you just lose so much potential for more story being told and the story beats are really broad and none of it's bad it's just um it is kind of almost the opposite problem of that uh spider girl uh anniversary issue that it's just there is so little packed into these five issues but man do they have a lot of room to breathe so all the great stuff really you know is featured it's all got a spotlight you know and i think my biggest complaints about this series and there aren't too many complaint complaints you know for the ways that spider girl quote-unquote had to fight back to back with hobgoblin at the end of last arc which she really didn't you know that's one of the things that became a frustrating hallmark of the spider girl mythos she's constantly got to work with her villains american dream managed to avoid that but she still has the i'm carrying on a legacy of a superhero in that she is sharon carter's adopt a baby i guess i don't you know we get it kind of shoehorned in here but that's actually my other big complaint i didn't love all the flashback stuff finding out that everybody's all interconnected is always cute and stuff but like little baby freebooter was (laughs) i knew you would hate that i knew you would hate that i loved the backstory this is just significantly too late to go into it and i also i kept waiting because the thing i've always wondered about shannon carter is is she boosted in any way this seems like some real major feats for somebody that does not have actual superpowers and i kind of thought the flashback was always going to lead to like and then shit got really bad so i stabbed myself in the heart with the super serum that my aunt peggy has been hiding all these years and that's why i'm american dream it's not she just worked really hard and got super athletic more power to her we love to see it but i uh, so much of the flashback is that repeated beat of she's working really hard and getting really athletic and getting better i think you probably just could have said that rather than spending so much page time on it i also that they created the team that was freebooter blue streak Agatha Harkness's kid or whatever. That, crimson Commando yeah, or lady, whatever. Yeah, the, the Magic Crimson. Yeah. Um, they're, they actually lady are blood. a cool team. Like I, and they wanted to call themselves like the Dreamers or something. And I actually am like totally into that. And the fact that it got spun in from these flashbacks and then we know that like they just show up and villainously try to become Avengers until they're like, no, it wasn't actually villainous. We just like you guys. And then they're just Avengers. I don't know. Weird, weird set of choices. But I did like the flashbacks. I just, I would have loved to have seen them somewhere around 2002. And part of it is that for me, you know, when I was saying before that it feels like this is a lot of Tom DeFalco's favorite hallmarks. It feels like almost as if Shannon and American Dream are two separate consciousnesses. And I get that that's kind of a metaphor we're going for, but it actually comes across like she might have some kind of like serious dissociative issues to work through as a result of the way she was brought up, as a result of wanting to be a hero so bad 
bad, but we don't really quite go there. It seems like she's got some imposter syndrome and she's having trouble really seeing herself as one of the Avengers. Like she's finally earned it, but we don't quite go there. We see that she has all of these connections to the characters that we're reminded that she came in with in the first volume. But for as much as we dance around it, we don't really go there. And I think I would like it more if there was a bit more definitive reference to the fact that these things do have value to the overall narrative of the MC2. This doesn't feel like an MC2 title. This feels like it actually could have just been a Steve Rogers title in a lot of ways. You could have just changed a couple of the characters. And this is a decent Captain America is feeling out of his depth pitch where he's trying to have sex with Thor. Or I guess Thor's trying to have sex with him. I wholeheartedly agree. I think Shannon being a little older, a complete and total fucking nerd because once her parents died and she decided that she wanted to try and become a gymnast and then an athletic person and a superhero, she's so singularly focused, she really has no life. Yeah, Shannon Carter and American Dream are like kind of distinct personalities. She's kind of dissociating as American Dream, but she so fully has embraced American Dream in a way that I would rather see that and then deal with you need to come to terms with being Shannon as well. And we see some some parts of that. Like she wants to connect with Thunderstrike and, you know, she keeps mistaking his requests for dates as like superhero stuff and she's interested, but maybe not. There's something there and it is much easier to read and acceptable to me and right for this writer than Mayday Parker is Mayday Parker trying to be Spider-Girl, constantly failing at it until she suddenly succeeds out of nowhere. She is Spider-Girl. She's supposed to be Spider-Girl and everything in her personal life that she's treating like it is as important as saving the universe is keeping her away from embracing this identity that is the thing about her that is most fascinating as a comic book character. And because unfortunately the writer is just not in a place to be writing teen stuff, on top of the fact that it is just never plausible that teen stuff would matter as much as being a superhero, that teen stuff definitely does not. American Dream has none of these problems. If there are problems with the interactions between her as a human and her, or her as a civilian and her as a superhero, in five issues, we don't really have enough time to get any kind of conclusion with that. And, you know, that's acceptable in a world where we get more of this. It's unfortunate in a world where we don't. But really, at the end of this, I wanted him to have written 100, 125 issues of American Dream because I feel like this is a character whose lane is correct for Tom DeFelt. And generally, she's a very enjoyable character. Yeah. I have no problems with American Dream. I think, you know, in this last batch of issues, I realized how much I like American Dream, how much I like Spider-Girl, I am iffy on Mayday Parker, how much I liked Push, for instance, as a random mutant example. You know, there's a lot of really great characters here that I would love to see show back up, but the other thing that this miniseries reminded me is how weak so much of the Avengers Next supporting cast is. Ion Man is a joke. Red Queen is a joke. Silkong, whose name I'm almost convinced is like racially insensitive. It's definitely a racial slur, for sure. Silkong is 100% a racial slur. I'm positive I don't feel good saying that name. Also, I just, this is the point at which I have to remind listeners that Red Queen is Hope Van Dyne, the inspiration for Ant-Man and Wasp, Hope Van Dyne, which is just still fucking insane to me. And a waste of a character because we do get a great character in Stinger, Cassie Lang, but it's not at all a way that feels true to this batch of heroes. Like I sometimes feel as though part of what this book asks us to do 
is randomly agree with the creatives that huge chunks of the Marvel Universe that you're asking us to accept in order to make these plots plausible, other parts that are completely lockstep with them never happen. And Red Queen feels like a huge thing that's not getting discussed. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that we have eaten Avengers crumbs in MC2 for a long time, and we have been expected to get sweeping developments in terms of what's going on with the team in two panels, between panels. This lineup is a curious one, and you just kind of had to have been paying a lot of attention and kept a lot of stuff in your head to remember that this would be the team that was there. And on top of that, uh, it's not a good team. So even if you know that the justification is there that this would be the team, this would be a point to be like, hand wave it, Stinger's back. Because Stinger fucking rocks and Saberfuck sucks, even though he's finally drawn in a way that he doesn't literally offend me to look at him. Sometimes it's not consistent though. Actually, that's one of my only notes. Finally, Saberclaw has like a cool visual, but there's times I'm like, is that Saberclaw? Is that Ravenpuff? I don't know who I'm looking at. And he just sucks, man. He's like, ah, yeah, of course she's doing it for the month. Like, who wants... Okay, like, I understand the school of writing that says there are unlikable people in the real world, so you might come across them in your comics, and here's an unlikable person. Yeah, but you know what? I have to put up with a lot of unlikable people. Uh, Maria Hill is fucking unlikable. That's fine. We had enough in Maria Hill, the screeching harpy, who shows up in every issue to be the soul-sucking worst, and again, it's it's so bad, it's good moment, but we didn't need anybody else to suck that bad. And there's that reference to Whedon that I thought was really interesting, the Maria Hill reference to Agent Whedon that kind of played out amusingly. The hard thing for me is this is another one that just ends with punching the bad guy unconscious and that's not the ending of the story. Like, that's not the end of this book. This also wasn't just another adventure unless you're saying it was just another adventure, in which case then I don't know that the lesson feels so well learned. There's gotta be a better balance. That's, I think, for the first time something I'm realizing that doesn't work for me about the MC2 all the time is we straddle this impossible line of it's all just another day at the office and wow that's the one we'll never forget well it's the one we'll never forget because we are only getting five fucking issues of American Dream we will never get another story from her and it doesn't feel like there's a possibility that we will so for the reader this has to be the one this has to absolutely kill it even if you are somehow an insane fantastic five person you only get two of those like you don't get years of plot and character development so they shouldn't be they can't afford to be lackluster in basically any way and the ways that they are are totally acceptable for just comic books broadly but it's tough especially i think it's tough when you're you're, you and me reading and talking about this because we are so invested in the universe and see all the potential but we 100 know that it's not happening like you are not getting any more american dream stories so when this one has a you know a little bit of a plotting story and a a villain that's not super impressive and a knockout that just kind of okay yeah sure that happens rather than like oh man that was the american dream story it's really disappointing because we're not going to get another chance we almost do but it's it definitely doesn't count you know this is the final entry for the mc2's non-spider girl titles and it ends with shannon being like maybe i can have a date with thunderstrike and don't get me wrong you can 
do a lot worse than Thunderstrike. There's that moment where Raven Stab or whatever his name is is like, oh, you know, try hanging out with a girl sometime. Thunderstrike and Thunder's like, I'm just trying to keep it straight, and I want to be like, you're the two gayest coded characters in this book. Shut up. Yeah, Thunderstrike, you are in love with J2. You're not keeping you anything no straight. No fucking panel time. No. Nope. This was a bad way to go out for me. I felt pretty defeated by it. I'm excited to see that Thunderstrike and American Dream will both return. In a matter of speaking, we have the 616 Thunderstrike miniseries, which if we love him enough, we can read some adventures of his in Avengers Arena or Avengers Academy, one or the other. And of course, American Dream shows up in the Captain America Corps miniseries by Roger Stern. But, you know, that's not really an ongoing thing where we're going to get a chance to really interact with her. It feels like this was a fine story if this was like a two issue arc of an Avengers miniseries or ongoing. But as my final ever non Spider Girl story in a period of time where I'm pretty let down by Spider Girl, this gets a C plus B minus because everything around it bums me out more. Yeah, I went with B minus. I will say so refreshing, like a crisp summer day, the Todd Knock art. Um, it just really goes to show that this was something that this universe needed to grow was just fresh eyes on it. We say it all the time. I wish it had happened. And when it does happen, you see what the possibilities are. It was so nice to see all of these characters drawn in a different style. Although the look for Saberclaw is not entirely consistent, we finally get to look at him and just not be like, what is this fucking abomination that is a different abomination in every panel? American Dream looks fantastic in a lot of it. Like, I just, I really enjoyed the art. And I I like this character. I like this character for Tom DeFalco. Those were my big takeaways. It's disappointing because I like this character for Tom DeFalco and it's not, that's not going to be anything that continues. It's not something that happened even five years ago so that we might have played around with it more. The disappointments have to do, as they so often do with MC2, in the fact that the potential is absolutely there. You see the moments of greatness are possible and they just never hit the way you want them to. We have been covering the MC2 for, you know, kind of like quite a while. Our first episode of the MC2 coverage dropped May 6th of this year and since then it's been running nearly every Monday and we've covered so much Spider-Girl but in addition to that we've done 12 issues of J2 12 issues of Avengers Next we've done 5 issues of Fantastic Five and 6 issues of Wild Thing we've looked at 3 issues of The Buzz and Dark Devil each before seemingly nothing interacted with Spider-Girl for quite some time we returned for Last Hero and Last Planet Standing as well as an official handbook of the Marvel Universe AU's appearance. We came back strong, sort of, for Amazing Spider-Girl, got a little bit of Avengers Next in there, got some Fantastic Five in there, and I'm just disappointed this is the end. It just feels like it was over a long time before anybody told these books, and they came out to a vacuum of no one. I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that of the 10,000 copies of American Dream that were purchased, maybe 2,000 were read if you told me 8,000 went right into Mylar's, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, those numbers feel correct in a lot of ways. And it's just, it's so weird because this is an entire universe. This could be the ultimate universe running strong at this same time. There is... 
so much here and it's amazing what they the seeds that they managed to plant back in 1998 from very very little and it didn't always work it didn't always make sense it didn't always have the sophistication that we expect now but there were some really brilliant ideas there and there was a really strong understanding of the roots of all of the characters that they were referencing the mythological components of superheroes as we think of them but also as they're thought of within the universe there was just a lot to work with and we never managed to get it off the ground and it's a bummer it's a bummer that you know as we got to the end of spider girl the original run of spider girl nobody said like man we never really got this to take off but we did some great stuff this has been great thank you and good night instead there were just these bumbling attempts to try and take off again that really got nowhere and i guess maybe i just kind of at this point and looking at them a little bit fondly knowing that nothing's going to come of it and thinking like always try until the end but never gonna get there I don't tend to use this language on this show. I tend to try and be more positive. Mm, This is the worst Spider-Girl has ever been. This arc, this four volumes of Amazing Spider-Girl. You know, one time somebody said to me that, you know, well, that person's a doctor. They have to be smart. Yeah, but you know what? Half of all doctors graduate in the bottom half of their class. So let's not get too excited about any one thing. There has to be a worst of something. It still counts as that thing. But fuck, it is the worst of that thing. And. And in the like 20 volumes of Spider-Girl we've read so far, this is far and away the worst volume of Spider-Girl. I think that's right. And I think that a big part of it is Spider-Girl has given us some Fs that were like, this is so bad, but man, are they trying, man, are they writing their hearts out on this, drawing their hearts out on this. We're just kind of at a heat death entropy moment here where there, there's this is not a big swing and a miss, which at least we could read and be like, man, they really tried to do something and they fucked up and we could talk about that this is just like they are continuing to write this story without anything to say and without any elements or character to bring to bear and that's for spider girl not even getting into the personal mayday parker stuff which is just completely beyond enjoyment i'd agree i think the thing that i want to add is i think this is a big swing and a big miss actually i think aranya was an attempt to to do something and it was a big miss because this is more of the same thing imagine your friend is like i want to be a writer and you're like oh cool tell me the tell me like you know one of your cool ideas and they're like i want to write a story about a person who can transform into a bird and likes playing hockey and i would be like okay jeff lemire get it together but okay well give me i love that do you have any other cool ideas in mind um yeah i have an idea for a guy who can transform into a dog and also likes to play soccer. Mm, okay. Do you have w- one more idea? Okay, this one's a little out there, but it's an elephant that plays cricket from Mumbai and you just want to be like, go sit in the corner. You know what I mean? How come every time somebody appears from 616, it is to insultingly, to the detriment of her quality of being, test Mayday like she's some sort of 
experiment to be toyed with like which amusingly she might be at the end of this arc oh my god <laughs> at the end of this issue i can't stand it the only thing i'll say about the swing in the miss of it all is that happened for me already with aranya who's already been here this is again just dragging out something that we already established which is that this is not aranya's place at all if she's just going to be this weird present future version of herself it's truly a disappointment for me because i don't know if you remember i was really excited about aranya yeah. showing up she really reminds me of a time i enjoy in the comics a time that was brave like and she could be cool like she's not that cool in 616 you can kind of do whatever you want with her she's older than mayday she's a little bit butcher like she really could have come in and be like hey i'm a lot like you except i'm older so i don't give a fuck about my friends anymore here's some cool tricks like don't ever let anybody tell you you need to be tested the thing that also bothers me is it's mayday versus aranya in the same issue that we get what is literally a girl fight and it's unacceptable all of this now i'm wearing it's that you know what like you know when you can see somebody's clearly inspired by something it's that moment in sports night you're wearing my shirt gordon i thought it felt tight like it's that moment but because you're translating it because you're translating it onto high school students it sort of just becomes stop fucking him i want the jacket back like it doesn't have the same stop having sex with her gordon <laughs> And to one page later, follow it up with, hello, like, mutant, explodey, like, victim of racist mob person. How you doing? Not so great. Can we talk? No, I've got to go deal with my amazing, he's verbally abusing me, boyfriend. I'm super troubled by Sarah. Ultimately, Sarah probably gets the rawest treatment of anybody <sighs> in the whole MC2. I think Sarah could have been our entry point into an Uncanny X People book. 100%. Where Push teaches her to use her powers and we finally get to understand who by the way I at this point cannot separate Laura from Rena in my mind and sometimes think oh right this is Laura in the MC2 no Laura is not mysteriously in both universes nor is Rena which is just a fucking a fucking travesty and I would have truly loved to have seen Sarah explored because Sarah represents something here that we rarely get from the MC2 and that's a delicate attention to the subtle way we emotionally treat each other the nature of MC2 is the nature of Marvel Comics at this point which is punch because it's funny and we enter a place where people become so mean spirited and villain culture becomes so embraced that I think we really see the ultimate focus point of it in Axis where you can't just make good guys bad guys and it's interesting anymore and I really think we started pushing there when everything every character said was insulting and mean-spirited that literally makes me wonder why these people are fighting together and that trickle-down effect hits every character in the book and I feel like in a lot of ways Sarah was the first time we really saw somebody address that on page and I think seeing May be so lacking in awareness and borderline callous towards the world but in this case this specific 
person who very clearly needs her and she's a superhero and she knows when people are in distress it is appalling the idea that a person who has been through as much as may wouldn't pick up on this and see that it's a thing that needs to be addressed and it's just ugly for no reason for the character there are a billion different things that could have plausibly pulled her away from helping a girl in need where i would have said oh that's a tough spot but that nuclear bomb was going to explode so spider girl had to get there but the idea that mayday would just slink off with gene thompson is ugly on so many levels to me and i think the ugliest part is there could be a story there again of you know a person who got so lost in i guess wanting to fuck this dude i really don't know but somebody who got lost in a desire for something that they just completely ignored the things that are really important and then have to do total penance for it like really fuck up their own personal lives even their professional superhero lives because of it to the point where they really have to go on an apology and fix it tour and that's not what this is this is just like may's a dumb high school student she's really into boys she totally missed that that girl is gonna fucking destroy shit now whoops that boyfriend sucks we're over it one of the things that these stories seeks to explore is the idea that you are secretly fantastic but you can't tell anyone and i've long said that maybe the least believable thing about spider-man is that he would let his bullies beat people up in front of him he is so strong he would be able to stop it i'm not even talking about the fact that he has you know the body of a male model i'm talking about the fact that he is unbelievably strong and he has preternatural senses i'm not saying he would use it to you know win the lottery just to make up an idea just you know something stupid but it's unbelievable to me that a teenager would never want to show the world the secret way he's special and you know we live in the tiktok generation like this is no longer even a question everybody wants to share some part of not everybody but a vast majority of people want to share in some part of the uniqueness of your own specialness projected into the world whether it's you want to have a million followers or you want one tweet to get 70 likes you know what i mean and spider girl is the strongest most athletic most coordinated most unbelievably capable young woman in her school and she can't tell anyone she cannot celebrate that she is the actual gene thompson she is the simone garbage dump face and she can't be those things what if because it's kind of clear that she doesn't fuck gene thompson is also really interesting uh what if she was just trying to feel that mayday parker is as special as spider girl i love that read i think that is very generous because i just don't see if she wants that then she should have stayed in the student body president election because that's just a fucking popularity contest i love that read and i there's something it might have been in the last arc or maybe it was two arcs ago or maybe it's coming up but somebody like says to her like oh you're doing you tried to be student body president you're doing cheerleader you really are trying to like be somebody and like do something and i think that does speak a little bit to what you're suggesting but gene thompson is an appalling accessory for this plot of whatever may is trying to do with her personal life it just he is a hideous character and this is i think the other problem is it's coming off of that fucking chris dude like the men in her life are just the soul-sucking worst to a degree that is very difficult to work with as a reader. And especially if the writing and the plots aren't going to take you there, if she is not going to have a real, I was just a victim of gaslighting, I have to go to fucking therapy now, I have, this is a horrible thing that's happened to me, then there is no point.
point to having this asshole in her life and having us have to go through these arcs where she's missing this mutant time bomb that's about to go off because she just wants to go to the ice cream social with Flash or whatever, Gene. There were also two really why the fuck did you bother if this is what you were going to spend the rest of the arc doing in this issue? The fight with Aranya just pisses me off. It doesn't make Aranya seem cool. It doesn't make Aranya seem like she's invested in Mayday. It makes Aranya seem like Arcade. I'm just not interested. And why bother having Mayday be like, Dad, train me if you're not only going to completely going to ruin Peter for me unredeemably in this arc, but you're not going to even have people like acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah, Aranya just missed opportunity, but like I said, the opportunity had already been missed, so I wasn't super hopeful when this arc kicked in that we were going to get it, but man, just the testing bullshit, so didn't need it. And then, you know, the fact that May kicks her ass and walks away is not even enjoyable in and of itself because I don't want that for May in this situation. Like, I'm not, I, I of course I'm rooting for her, but this doesn't feel like a victory. It just feels like, let's get the fuck out of this. And the idea of her calling people to ask that he train her again it really harkened back to when Buffy goes to Giles and tells him that she wants him to be her watcher again and that being a real statement by the show that they were going to shift things a little bit and move towards a new if not format just like a new focus in the storytelling that made my ears perk up when I saw Mayday say it but we are at a point where it is too late for me to believe that we will have things uh, come to fruition in the same way that they did on Buffy. And I think the proof that they're still trying to be clever full time at the cost of really thinking about the pacing is the cover of the next issue. I have no real problem with anybody who wants to express themselves through dance. I express myself through tons of art. And I think if you want to be somebody who like there is nothing hotter than a bodybuilder who can also dance. That's beyond hot, right? So please be a duality of masculine and feminine. And by the way, I meant like dance like a good slutty go-go boy and drop it down. I didn't mean like, oh, knows how to plie. No, I meant like, you know, like a good slut. And so I struggle with that. It's not that I can't imagine Mayday doing two things. It's that Mayday being a part of the synchronized cheer squad feels like maybe Tom DeFalco didn't read the first 120 issues of this book where she is constantly at her wits end on time. But this just feels like an exercise in futility for May and me as a reader. Yeah, she quit basketball, which was her passion because she felt she had an unfair advantage. Those same advantages apply to cheering. The point that May incidentally made that this book has been making for so long is that she has an advantage being in high school and being a young person right now and she probably shouldn't be anymore and we really just should have recognized this a while ago and aged her up to college and skipped this shit. And and the offensiveness of I'm going to be a cheerleader so I can be closer to my boyfriend. They're like just keep saying there's a story there it happens it can be dealt with and made to be something that teaches people a lesson but may just gets into this for weird nebulous reasons that we know are really just having to do with gene and then kind of just gets out of it just as quickly because gene is the soul sucker why should she be with gene you know i also have nothing courtney who knew that courtney was the mouthpiece for all of us right lastly though uh, before i can forget uh teak i was hoping to start a group called
called Please Murder All the Straights, and I was hoping you wouldn't notice it's a hate group. The name doesn't give anything that might make (laughs) you think that it's potentially a hate group. And when I stress that it is exclusively so that one type of class survives and another class does not, uh, you should not think that this is a hate group. Please think it is a group for a protected class. It's a school club. This is like the actual thing where I'm like, no, a step too far is if you think a black woman is going to turn that, her eyes to a group that could possibly be a hate group what a fucking mistake though that is the idea that she's obviously has a problem with it and that's she should but the fact that she does not immediately say that you thought you could approach a black woman and ask if the school would sponsor a club called humanity first that is a mutant hate group you are out of your goddamned mind yeah, it's it's a step too far. It is actually offensive. I don't know why nobody did anything about this between the first draft of this and going to print. This whole humanity first student union thing is a weird touch. No weirder than Benji having super spidey powers and collectively everyone lying to Mary Jane, which this arc should just be called what happened to telling baby Mary Jane the truth? Because all anyone does is lie to this poor adult woman who works hard to take care of her family and who is often the person that handles all the spider shit that's going around because peter can't because he has such strong ptsd from being spider-man for so long that he's just holed up with his bum leg trying to do cop science all right well there's no better time to say it the most offensive thing in the entire history of this book <laughs> is pirouette <laughs> impact and headcase. I'm gonna like I even the Did humanity I, first design these mutants? I actually thought for a minute that they were behind humanity first so that they could round up a bunch of humans and kill them because they are such a hyper exaggeration of what not to do. Each one of them is a hideously deformed woman, and we're going back to tropes that we've seen before, like Butch Bulldyke. Butch Bulldyke baby. Like there's a baby in there too both of them are baby for some reason i really don't understand because like i've made a lot of statements and you have as well and we've made jokes but like we've talked about how at times it feels like maybe tom defalco's cultural understanding or uh you know cultural interplay vernacular froze somewhere around the weird science tv show right so oingo boingo exists but danny elfman doesn't have that many oscars yet right and i really need him to fast forward forward to he's handed steve jablonski desperate housewives and we are moving to a more than just tim burton place because the understanding of what is okay you know i love preacher but i don't think i love preacher anymore i think i love what preacher opened my eyes to about storytelling when i was younger and while i am a fan of a number of garth ennis's works still because some of them do hold up preacher itself is a damaged work these are the same fucking things that were in Preacher. Yep, I think that is totally correct. It's just so... Every regular character and property from the MC2 that we have seen you know, show up recently has been dragged kicking
kicking and screaming to age two years beyond where they started. And the one place that has not gotten that treatment is the X-People. Mutants overall, just, you know, a couple stories in Spider-Girl, but those are really much more about how Spider-Girl deals with bigotry. They're not about mutant culture, about minority culture, about all those things. And there has been no development of a mutant character. There's been no development of the mutants that we know are present. And this just feels like if I'd seen it from the 1998 stories, I would have said, this is really stupid. I hope we get better from here. But to see it this late in the game, it just feels like it requires writing a hundred plus books to make a character get to a point where they're not frustratingly offensive. And it doesn't feel like it's worth the journey. No way. Because one of the things that makes a question of reality valid is the ability to either accept it or never accept it. And just to jump back to Buffy for a moment, normal again works because it's obviously not the, you know, the episode where it's revealed that everything Buffy is in a hallucinogenic, you know, fever dream, a a state of psychosis, and that, you know, she actually is really in a mental institution, you know, that all of that could be real is real because it's only real under a certain guise. There is no chance that they are actually trying to invalidate the entire show and then go on. That's not what they're doing. And that's why it works. The other way it works is when it's such a shocking reveal that, you know what? I could believe that Moira McTaggart is a mutant with 10 lives. That is just so fucking ridiculous. I'm in. But to invalidate that maybe Mayday isn't Mayday in the same way that nearly crashed the Spider-Man franchise, you know, 20 years earlier, I'm really bothered by this. I don't like May clone floating in a tube. It just doesn't ring true for me. It does not for me either. And the fact that this book went so awkwardly out of its way to never identify who Kane and Ben Riley are and what the connections are and really seriously would sit you down and have Peter Parker say, I'm going to tell you everything and then never use the word clone that we are now jumping over all that that may still doesn't know who Kane is and we are just going right into a May clone saga is ill-advised at the best. And it's adding more things that I don't want when I already don't have enough time for the things that I don't want or that I want. You know, we loved Brenda. There was a time when we were like, fuck, give Raptor the book. And now she shows up to be like, Normie, can I jack you off while we watch The Bachelor? And that's it. That's it. Oh, Normie, you didn't come back while The Bachelor was on. Oh no, you're passed out in our wine cellar. Like, that's all she is. And I, you know, I purposely made her just like a generic New Jersey person. But she is just so flat and boring. And I know Normie doesn't have goblin powers or dusk powers. Normie kind of plays like, um, well, like a chump, hey. I mean, but at least he gets to do something. You know, I if you tell me there's a lot going on, we don't have room for Brenda to come back as Raptor. Whatever. Put her in the fucking cellar with the with Peter and Normie. She knows what's going on too. She's been a superhero. She's a part of this. Like, But women can't handle it and it has to be the man's journey and he has apparently, to carry it all on himself by himself and women can never handle anything, let alone the fact that this fucking book is Spider Girl. Yeah, and running, I mean like, so we've got Normie doing this to Brenda and Peter doing this to Mary Jane on like three different fronts at this point. I'm really disappointed because like we've also said, Jean is so disgusting and we are seeing Peter 
Peter kind of justify why he's lying to Mary Jane about their spider baby and about the potentiality of their cloned daughter. We see him not even say to May there, you know, there might be something going on that's really freaking me out, but I I can't talk about it yet. You know, you're also a superhero. You know these things. Uh, As soon as I can talk about it with you, I will. Instead, he just sort of implies that he's done with her and might decide to start like abusing her. I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to take from some of this, but there is a general sentiment that when men are gross, it's fine and that women need to be kept in the dark because they can't handle anything. And I don't know whose idea of a healthy relationship this is, but it's not working for this title at 120 issues in. No, and we know we are at time of publication of this book. We know that you can do conflict stories that don't involve, I have to keep a secret. And in fact, if you don't do those, when you really have to save them from the secret where the guy is like, literally, if you speak this word, your wife's head will explode. Those seem such higher stakes because you know that these people know better and you don't do secrets when you're in a long-term relationship and you don't do secrets when you are a superhero who has trained a daughter who is a superhero who knows how to handle this stuff. And the idea that on top of the fact that you would keep the secret from her, that you would decide that she actually might be the clone and therefore you should treat her like a monster unless you are going to get into it and do the fucking PTSD storyline. Do the Spider-Man physically cannot handle the news that has been revealed to him because this happened to him before and it so fucked him up that he is now incapable of handling it. Unless you're going to delve into that and write something that gives some catharsis for character and reader, it is gross. To, to do it like this. And do you know why I've had you on so much coverage? Because notice all the other things you're not doing anymore. I've turned you into a podcast cheerleader. Look <laughs> at my cheekbones. <laughs> What the fuck? This is so dumb. Like, you have portrayed Simone as basically, uh, okay, yeah, she might be intelligent enough to chew on her own shoe, but you haven't made a case for her being like a human being. And I am really troubled by the fact that she is such an exaggeration of stupidity. Like, there is a point where you could be like, ooh, you know, you're really, it seems like you're coming for people who might be mentally ill like you know they have like social issues where they don't understand empathy or maybe you're trying to make a statement about people who can't read social cues no you've created an over-the-top high school villainess who at sometimes is unbelievably dumb and vapid and at other times is basically just a teenage version of elan who now that she's shown up i'm half convinced they're the same woman I, I think that all the time simone is jenna maroney but there's no good writers writing any jokes for her she's just like what if the the bachelorette party theme was sluts. It's, you know, I have a very specific memory of being very annoyed by a lot of the Jenna me want food jokes. Yeah. I I now understand with some distance that that's the joke. The joke is that that's not a joke and that people think it's a joke and that Jenna is willing to do it for laughs when it's not a joke. But she's so frustrated by the things she's supposed to do that our jokes is the humor. And I really understand that. 
that, of course, like by the end, I say that, you know, 30 Rock went from feminism to lemonism and it stops being about how this woman is so incredible at her job, despite all of the insurmountable obstacles in front of her. And it becomes how can Liz keep failing upward today? And so I find that really frustrating, but that's a really apt metaphor for here. There was a time where I felt like Spider-Girl stories were about how Mayday is so incredibly capable in such a dense world. But now I just find myself thinking that Mayday is failing upward despite her best intention to crash and burn her own life. Uh, yeah, I, no, no argument here. This cover for 22 telling us that we're going to get Fury and Push. Okay, I'm excited because I am so annoyed by all of this. I hate everyone stuff that Peter is doing. It's so frustrating. This issue pushes me some places. First of all, no Fury. No Fury ever again. Eat no. a dick. I don't want it. I'm not here for it. I'm not going to engage with it. And if you ask I was going to give it a chance, okay. but you fucked it up and now we can't have nice things. Like, again, this is another hot slut character that could have been really funny and campy and been a capable villain and, and like, so different from May, but so feminine in a way that the two of them could have really butted heads and been antagonists. But we're not getting any of that. So she's just weird and, like, a hot 29-year-old and sometimes the hottest 60-year-old that's gotten the best plastic surgery, but it is definitely still plastic surgery. And then also a goblin person. And does she put the ears on or how is she hiding them during the day? Does she morph into them? The questions, a lot of criticisms, not a lot of enthusiasm. I think you could make this better by like adding a little bit of American beauty and a little bit of euphoria and having that Peter is now having sex with Jean. And uh, at the end of the film, a neighbor comes in and goes, I can't take this anymore and shoots them both. Yes. And that's it. Yep. That's that's the correct one. That's the way to do it. Uh, we also haven't really been talking about the fact that this mutant plot just keeps escalating for no reason towards no end goal. They add a third horrifying baby mutant to the mix. Yeah, head case is, is one step too far. Like, I actually... They keep her in a box? We are literally getting to a... <laughs> I can't believe you said it like that. We are getting to a point where it is like, bring me all of your physically disabled or uh, physically different mutants and I will make them monsters. Anybody who has any sort of, you know, brain swelling must be a killer. I don't know what's going through their heads here. Like imagine if Chris Claremont had written an additional issue of the Mutant Massacre in which he was like, no, they deserved it. They were disgusting. And that's this, basically. Yeah, because we actually do give Chris Claremont a really hard time for these kinds of characters, like Brainchild in the Savage Land. He can't really use this character with this particularly distended head shape that is clearly meant to represent types of physical disabilities. And, you know, because a lot of those uh, people are monsters came from people being physically different. There's a lot that we don't think about that's just sort of allowed to be in comics still. But I think treating everybody like some sort of super disabled villain is really troubling. Yeah, I mean, Claremont, you know, the Morlocks are a great example of we wouldn't necessarily allow that to happen in the way it did back then, but his point was ultimately these people are fucking human too, and you need to engage with the sin of Xavier not engaging with them is a big one, and they deserve everything that the people up top get, and they don't get it for reasons that are very complex, and nobody is in the right for the way they treat the Morlocks. This is just like these grotesque 
grotesque terrorists have to be dealt with. Like, yeah, racism exists, but these guys are gross. And it ramps up to such weird places. I'm not saying that if someone is gross, they are evil. That's literally the opposite of what I'm trying to communicate. But because of the moralistic way that this universe portrays ugliness as indicative of evil, that Sarah doesn't say, mm, you guys look like poorly stirred oatmeal. I can't do this. Is really weird to me. Yeah, the fact and- that Sarah and Magneta are sitting in this team, these two gorgeous women with weird babies. I don't know what else to say. They're weird babies. It is some sort of adult baby uh, amateur production of Sucker Punch. Yep. And oh, perfect. It is really uncomfortable. Clearly, Dan Dan really likes baseball cards. And the couple of references that, okay, like, I don't want to, I don't want to give this arc an A, <laughs> but don't. I might have to between the Courtney going, yeah, I got nothing joke and Uncle Charlie. I won't be an Uncle Charlie referring to Xavier as a traitor mutant who portrays himself as a human is, I don't understand how that's not part of Krakoan lexicon. That is the most clever and that and Ex-Idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Ex-Idiots was so funny. Yeah. But I won't be an Uncle Charlie. Holy shit. Tom DeFalco. I would have given you an arc of New Mutants now. Yeah. And and like and that is one of those things that sort of speaks to the fact that when we're harsh with this book, Tom DeFalco's setting the standard. He clearly can get there. So I'm going to say something a little bit weird that I don't think I have the right portrayal of, you know, by nature of being a queer poly man, I have, you know, a number of partners. Hey. And, uh, you know, I have a partner who is on this show who is significantly younger than me. And that's, you know, being a good big guy for Jonah is about the closest I come to having a kid, but I don't understand exactly the narrative here because it sort of seems like Peter is psychologically obsessed with Benji and protecting Benji in a way where he's turning on everyone else because like, I mean, it's a little bit next to normal. I miss the mountains. It's getting weird that he is dissociating into this little world of it's just me and my little guy. And I wonder if that is once again a subconscious response like I felt about the nature of the relationship between Mayday and Franklin. What if this is a subconscious response to the nature of the relationship the world has with Spider-Man and the fact that the thing that hit was Spider-Girl? Not that there's anything wrong with Spider-Girl and not that Tom DeFalco is just waiting to make her a boy, but I can't help but notice how all about his son to the detriment of the women in his life, Peter has become overnight. Yep. And I just don't have the confidence that this is going to a place of this is a character suffering from mental illness. We're going to show you how it hurts him, how it hurts his family, how he comes back from it, and how he goes into recovery and does the work to get better. They're just going to kill the fucking clone. Yeah. And I don't, I honestly don't believe I actually knew that there was all that webcomic material between, I actually don't know that I read all of Amazing Spider-Girl, you know, I started this with, I've read this all before, but I actually think that I might have missed a number of trades based on uh, the format of production or the way things were, you know, kind of available at one time or another. And 
I cannot speak to the contents of the remaining 24 issues we have. I know some things, but I can almost say with certainty there cannot be an appropriate amount of time to delve into the remaining psychological things that need to be delved into before we find ourselves signing off from this universe. Yeah, my assumption is based on past patterns and how much time we have left. There really isn't enough time. There's especially not enough time to be introducing mental health issues and then hoping that we get any kind of resolution for them, let alone the ones that were introduced so long ago that still have no tie-up, that the only thing we can hope for is just like a good resolution, the bad part of which is that it's too fast and not earned. I'll, I'll take that at, the, at this point for some of this stuff. And speaking of fast and furious, do you mean like Elon thinking that, okay, I, I need a little bit of clarity because is Project Changeling new? I mean, I don't mean is it new to the book? Obviously, it's new to the story, but I can't figure out from that line about we had it flown in if this is some old thing that they are finally activating or if this is some recent thing that they're just using to fuck with everybody. And beyond that, does Elon all but literally word for word say that this is just another way for her to get that goblin D? Yes, she does. So this is just her trying to get the knob goblin. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. My reading was that Norman Osborne grandpa wrote this down, like had a plan, put it in a book. And in the recent past, Elan read that book and did all the stuff in it. And that's where we are. Okay, sure. I don't have a a better argument. I think the thing that really falls apart is I like the idea of escalating the high school drama to a more realistic place. The problem is it would require surrendering the unnecessary high school drama that we are instead leaning into very heavily. And I am sort of shocked that there's just like a pivot to a race war. (laughs) Yeah, real fast, real hard. Getting Brad back in the mix. Moose is always flirting with it because he's so mad at Spider-Girl. Oh, and there's all this. Moose is trying to get Sarah to explode at Spider-Girl. Davida is just like, I know mutants are really difficult. That's okay to be to hate them, but I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, it does seem like everybody has a secondary mutation of being really unreasonable when they're being talked about. But the minute you're talking to them, they're really reasonable until you start being like, but I mean, you know your whole race is gross, right? And I, I don't know. I don't know. This arc really goes off the rails for me, especially once the tube baby wakes up and is like, no, I have the same outfit. How does she get the same outfit? I, and how is her hair exactly the same way? I don't think Alon has those kinds of resources. Some of those bangles, they only produce them once at Claire's and when they're off the shelves, they never come back. Yeah, no, yeah. We can't all just have secret magic psychic bangles where we can switch places with another character. That's just gay in this universe, guys. So, I don't know. I think there was a lot of mistakes that need contextualization. There's a really cool thing that Chris Claremont did as the granddaddy of all things X-Men, and he donated like his life's work to a project that organized all of it and has archived a bunch of it, and you can read a lot of the notes from editors, and I would love to get my hands... Oh, and emails, right? Like, I would love to get my hands on these emails. 
I really want to know what the original pitch was and where the email came down from Tom Brevoort that said, hey, Tom, we're cutting the book at 30, but your contract states that you do at least one book a month. So you will be doing a feature on Spider Family where you can tell classic Peter and Mary Jane stories. That's what people are coming to Spider Girl for anyway. So that's what you should be doing. And he goes and does it. And then, hey, man, big letter writing campaign. A lot of people on Facebook reacting. Looks like we're going to do a digital volume of Spider Girl on Marvel Digital Unlimited. Okay, well, I just closed out all of my stories because you told me to. I guess 30 is going to have a sudden pivot change and we'll go back to publishing story. Like if I could see those emails, I think a lot of my frustrations would be a lot easier. But instead, this arc that felt like it's been in many ways building for like, I'm barely kidding, 75 issues. There are things about this particular arc that feel like they've been coming forever because they've been coming since Elon and they've been coming since this whole goblin legacy idea has been building and they've been coming since the mutants started to play a larger role with characters like Nancy push it all comes down to Magneta blows up Sarah wiping out a building leaving everyone to believe that spider girl who was still tussling with her clone died when Mayday shows up at the door at home and sees Mary Jane we don't know if it's the clone or Mayday but we do see some rubble that indicates that perhaps spider girl did not make it out of this fight all right that is it, it's this could have gone on to issue 25 like the explosion could have been 25 and i still would not have felt like i had enough time to close out all of the things that had been set up in the last two issues yeah no i don't i don't feel that we got basically any conclusion i guess to the mutant stuff not really but it's just like we got to a point where i know that they're gonna just kind of be over it next issue and i guess i am too so that's fine but it was not proper plot resolution alan has got to come back because we're really not over this clone thing we do get her confronting and rejecting gene it just feels like you know now that there's a clone in the mix man this couple arcs really touching on some buffy stuff it feels like we're gonna get a who are you moment where clone spider girl is going to react very differently to gene than mayday did in their last encounter there is a lot here also three random panels of aranya and madam webb's dildo chair again i don't why also where the fuck is madam webb put her in the goddamn book but that's the whole thing that they're doing number one i just want to point out they finally said the reason it's okay to break up with gene is because he's done an act of violence he physically beat on wes for threatening to reveal not even threatening for saying you should tell mayday that you fucked her life over not even that i'm going to and so finally they committed him to being a bad guy so may could break up with him because a woman can't just choose not to want to be with an attractive man on her own and beyond that aranya madam webb they actually play the same role that dark devil did and kane did get us close to a thing make it seem like it's important make it seem like it's part of the big like if we're supposed to think that this whole heart of the spider is anything other than being in love with her right like the heart of the spider is like her heart is like being weak for her will break him right like it's not an object it's she doesn't have a fucking object for the last 50 issues so i i don't know i'm finding myself very glad that we only have three episodes left because as much as i've enjoyed this project the overwhelming number of positive things that have accrued over time while overwhelming is starting to have trouble measuring up to the number of problems and plot holes yeah the balance is really off for amazing spider girl so that's really the tough part you know we would be so charmed by a 
issues, arcs, moments uh, in the original run. And we would get so excited about characters like Rena that even though a lot of Rena's story is not great, it's okay because the character is awesome and we just see so much there. This is all just, uh, I, this is all a mess. Well, we don't have a whole lot of mess left to sort through. We have six final issues of Amazing Spider-Girl. We have four issues of Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man, originally published in Amazing Spider-Family. We have 11 issues of Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 1, which collects a total of 17 short stories published across Spider-Family and Marvel Unlimited. Uh, None of them were like full length. They were all like eight pages, so they got collected kind of interestingly. Then we have the four-issue second volume of Spectacular Spider-Girl that is a proper miniseries response to the success of the short stories. I don't fucking understand. And then we have Spider-Girl The End, a one-shot that isn't really the end because later on, uh, Secret Wars and Spider-Verse would return to these characters. It's unlikely we will cover those right away, but we will be taking a look at Thunderstruck Strikes five-issue miniseries that connects to the character Kevin as we know him from MC2, but sets it in the pages of the MU, as well as Captain America Corps 1 through 5, which sees everybody's favorite American dream. I'm excited about these, but as far as Amazing Spider-Girl, I give this arc a C minus D again. It's just it's just a bummer. Yep, that's the grade. Just getting through it at this point, man. We're just trying to collect them all, trying to know everything so that when the time comes and we need to read reboot mc2 we've got everything we need to do it yeah because you know the thing that we said at the end of spider girl was for all of the b minus and c plus volumes and the occasional c minus we would have come across we still felt that spider girl as a title earned a b or a b plus overall and at 100 issues a bb plus is nothing to frown about especially when you've created an a character that is iconic that could show up anywhere at any time and be a joy to have wherever she was. Truly. I think that the kind of unfortunate balance though is the side titles were a little bit more like a general C. There were a lot of good ideas. J2 had promised but failed. Wild Thing was a great character in a bad book. Dark Devil and Buzz offered interesting things for sure. And so we felt like, you know, the overall side universe oh, and we really loved things about Last Hero and Last Planet. So I think overall the side universe might have even earned like a B minus. Yeah, I think that's about right. I cannot imagine, even if this last arc is everything I wanted, giving Amazing Spider-Girl anything better than a CC minus. Like, this has been just a dismal descent into none of the things that make us love Spider-Girl and all of the things that made us wary of this project in the first place. If this last arc that we're about to read, my jaw starts at panel one on the floor and does not get up until the end of the book, the whole thing will have been a C. Yeah, I think that that's the most I can hope to walk away from this run with. I'm I'm looking forward to looking back on this run, but at the moment I'm having a hard time looking at it, even though I know it's what's next. Yeah. I will look at this the way that, you know, sometimes like I really enjoyed the fact that Steve Orlando threw uh Brimstone Love into Marauders. I am in the minority in that, but like it has to do with my love of X-Men 2099, even though I know it's bad. This is like if we could get Mayday into 616 or into some Spider-Verse stories, give her a really big plot line and you know in that she were to have an issue where she went to somebody and said hey I was in this really toxic abusive relationship when I was in high school where I got gaslit by my partner and it took me so long
on to realize what happened and to negotiate who I was as this incredibly strong hero with what I allowed this person to do to me, and that ends up with some catharsis, then that hypothetical issue existing in the future could really redeem what happens in the stories here. And so there's a lot here that I'm just like, if somebody else grabs this girl and does really cool shit with her, there is still stuff in here that I would happily see reflected in a way that could make it all better. But without that, it will always, it will remain as it is. And it's just not. Well, until we come back to swing one last amazing time before a spectacular outing and then the end, where can everybody find you online, DK? You find me all over this podcast talking about the modern Marvels and the Chronos Gaming Classics and everything else that we say and do. And on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You guys can find me and my original creator work over on KidRiotComics.com as well as on Comixology in Kid Riot volumes as well as in the recent Young Men in Love collection. Could not be prouder to be part of that unbelievable collection featuring amazing writers and artists from Marvel's history like Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, Cena Grace, and more. You guys can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. As well as producing this show three times a week, every week. But until we return to dial right back into that MC2 lunacy, remember, keep it loose, slam heat, and don't be the Mayday in the tube. Perfect.